that means it's different underlying providers, right? So it's never going to just run in multiple places. And, you know, you've, you've effectively got multiple data centers with completely different providers. And I think that the time that it... Hello, welcome to Cloud Unplugged. This is season two, episode eight. I am here with Richard Smith from Codification. I'm John Shanks. Uh, Richard, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'll just give you a part of history, John. So uh, I started working in IT back in 2001, originally as a technician, and then I moved into infrastructure engineering, doing things like setting up data centers with VMware. In uh, 2012, that's when I went became an independent contractor. So I did site reliability engineering for the London Olympics. Um, I helped a startup uh, go to cloud, basically from a, from a software product to a SaaS product. I uh, helped a housing company uh, get off their physical data center into private cloud, so third-party cloud. Um, and about eight years ago, that's when the assignments became kind of around cloud native and DevOps. So I was the DevOps lead for Department of Work and Pensions, and I'd got their first microservice live, um, known as the Pension Tracing Service. That same year, 2016, was also when I joined HSBC as their enterprise architect for platforms. So that was also about cloud, so AWS this time, um, but cloud native as well, about exploring microservice-style architectures. And then the last project that I did before kind of being full-time codification CEO uh, was HMRC. So that was their roll-on, roll-off uh, project, which is better known as the Brexit platform. So I did the, the architecture for that. Um, and all of those projects were supposed to be about agility and DevOps. And I could see mm. these kind of recurring patterns of failure, uh, patterns of success as well, but, but you know, lots of the same mistakes being repeated. So that's when I decided to to set up codification. So I hired the first employee back in April, 2019. Um, and that's what I do now. So now we work with enterprises with in-house engineering teams and help them on the same kind of journey, adopting cloud, cloud native. Nice. And, and the challenges that you're helping customers with at the at like, at current and at the moment <clears throat> and previously, that's all, what is the type of constraints that you're more focused on is it around modernization or applications itself or is it more like cloud infrastructure automation or um or a bit of all of it I don't, is it all of those things i mean it, it it is a bit of all of it sometimes when when we're kind of very heavily involved with the client but um mainly platform engineering is is the sweet spot so it is around like adopting kubernetes mainly but of course that then breaks into CICD, it breaks into the whole dev and ops and, and breaking down the organizational silos. And then, you know, it bleeds into everything else where they don't necessarily have the talent in-house. So training the talent, hiring the talent, um, onboarding them, um, showing them the way, all of those sorts of things as well. Right, I see. Yeah. That's really good. So the, the stuff around the talent side, is that is that the biggest constraint? Obviously, Kubernetes, I think... Is a big uh, is a big topic, obviously, um, and you know we're in that space too. So we kind of see how complicated. Well, it is just complicated, I and mean, that's just factual. What it's trying to do is complicated, um, 
So is that what you're seeing quite a lot? The challenges is people struggling for adoption in Kubernetes. It's it's harder than it they thought it was going to be, or is it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So it's the it's the it's the lack of talent on the market for fast follow companies. So of course the 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 very large tech companies don't struggle with this as much, of course. But um, outside of those, I think there's a shortage of talent for one thing and then it's precisely what you said it's very easy to underestimate you know in some ways it feels like cloud native is is like an order of magnitude jump up from from virtualization and complexity so it's very easy for for organizations who've done relatively okay with provisioning data centers and in-house application development um to assume okay it's it's that kind of paradigm shift and i feel as though from what i've seen over the years that it's that it's much much harder than that, and, and yeah, it catches the complexity catches people off guard. And what what do you, what do you think is driving the adoption of Kubernetes? Is it more like the market, or is it technologists coming in representing the need and the business, and then trying to implement? I guess what do you feel like it's p- people that come in that then drive the adoption of Kubernetes in like they make the decision for the business, or the business is recognised the value of the technology for what they need? Or do you still think it's a bit disconnected, like the technologies still focused on the technologists without the true value of understanding of why Kubernetes? Um, or yeah, I think both? there's a bit of like, there's a bit of that where the, the tail's wagging the dog, where the implementation technology Kubernetes or, or containerization's chosen first. But I think, you know, early early days, I guess, like 2015, it was this agnosticism idea of like, you know, they'd experienced customers had experienced vendor lock-in before and were terrified of that. Um, mm. And so there was like, can we build on an abstraction layer? Can we be, you know, multi-cloud um, or tool agnostic or whatever? So I think that was driving it earlier. Now I actually think, and I don't know, you know, we'll get into that probably, but I don't know that I fully agreed with those those sentiments but i think now it is it is kind of that there's a pressure from the customer to be omni-channel or to release software quickly and actually to achieve that you do need you know microservices and that then demands a cloud native approach which then kubernetes is the only game in town but actually when i started doing this sort of thing there was other valid options you know swarm was quite quite big at the time so we were doing a lot of swarm stuff so i don't think it's kubernetes as the driver uh, but probably like microservices style architecture and needing to independently deploy services to do omnichannel is is probably what it is now. Yeah, so like more containers themselves on like being more portable and slim, which more developer friendly really than a VM. Yeah, uh, which is yeah. where we're. I mean, you know, devs would never really be spinning VMs up or doing Vagrant. That was always like infrastructure exactly. related, wasn't it? And then suddenly you could then actually start packaging up your application into something like docker and then that became easier for developers and then kubernetes came out later didn't it really because it was just docker at the beginning mostly and then kubernetes came later mesos marathon swarm then obviously kubernetes so but yeah, yeah. that's what we saw people successfully adopt containers um probably not true microservices but but you know containerizing to do lift and shift. So finding that relatively 
doable in-house. And then a lot of our customers came from those that then got stuck either trying to get it into production or they're in production and trying to scale it or even more often a kind of in production at some kind of scale, but can't tell when it breaks, why it's broke. Um, so the observability stuff and, and stack tracing and that sort of thing. So I think it all comes back to lack of platform engineering talent. So it's good development talent, maybe good system engineering, but that kind of crossover skill set is, is missing in yeah. most of it. and still now, right? Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I find it interesting, like platform engineering is kind of like funny because the term could have been around probably for a while, but it's then either maybe like the central model versus disaggregating model. So it's like, depending on how you perceiving it, if you're just having people in projects and you probably wouldn't call that platform engineering, you just call that like DevOps, you know, DevOps embedded in a team delivering yeah. with the application team. But then the minute you kind of rolled into something central, see like actually that model, there's not enough consistency or oversight or um, you're kind of relying on documentation and standards and all these other things to try and coerce some consistent approach or some security model. And then kind of centralizing it was a better option because at least it's in one place, like you're doing everything in one place. Yeah. But then that's risen to the concept of platform engineering is in like engineering everything in a central place. Um, but the term platform obviously is so used that it became you know like the clouds a platform isn't it you know or there's like platforms everywhere um, platforms as a service all these different phrases yeah so it's, it's quite confusing i'm not sure whether people do understand what platform engineering means i don't think so they do but, but but devops stuff has the same curse doesn't it that's true you know, yeah devops seemed seemed to me to sort out start out like agile so it was a culture, a culture of automation or a culture of breaking down organizational silos, um, that sort of thing. And then, you you know, I was called a DevOps engineer at one point. So that's kind of an anti-pattern in, in my mind. So, you know, that that term also gets gets misused, like DevOps engineer is that, should that be a, should that be a thing or, you know, but then there's, like you say, there's this kind of federated view of where you have someone embedded in the team and sometimes they call that site reliability engineer <laughs> but but whatever mm -hmm. yeah i think i think for us we use it because that's what we're doing so it fits with our organization because you know we are specifically building a platform whether it's whether it's a cloud landing zone or it's a kubernetes platform or whatever so that's what we're doing i think it's mm -hmm. a separate question of should non-technology companies that are you know finance company becoming fintech or health becoming like should you should you have that you know either of those concepts should you have a, a devops team or a platform engineering team i think probably no um but but we need one because that's what we're what we're yeah. typically being contracted to do yeah. yeah that makes a lot of sense it is very confused isn't it because there's loads of um people brand themselves as different things i don't i don't think a lot of people can keep up with the terminologies and the trends because obviously it's rapid isn't it and there's so many different paradigms on top of it like you're saying sre obviously born out of google is yeah. mostly about scale you know they were high scale so you can kind of expect the need to be reliably engineering um for the scale that you've got to so it doesn't go down and that you can perform well and then devops 
obviously it's more of a methodology than a role got coined mo- mostly by um recruiters maybe <laughs> in truth and then people were like branded as an engineer um and then they were kind of there was a period where there were two like people kept using them interchangeably like oh i'm an sre but they were kind of just doing engineering in a project maybe um so it's still really devops because it wasn't that they were doing reliability engineering yeah. um, and then platform engineering happened at the same time and then platform engineering with devops and sres because some companies have like all of them on the go yeah uh, don't they like different shapes and sizes and it is quite complicated to know who's doing what what are the roles and responsibilities of everybody absolutely yeah. um do you want to give your opinion on what like the the value of platform engineering is versus devops versus sre that you see in customers just to clarify things a bit i mean i think if 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 i adopt the stance of the customer so if the customers let's say they're a software enterprise or or a bank trying to release digital banking products or whatever right they should want to concentrate on building the product and so i mm. think what you want is that to just be abstracted away and be self-service now there's a there's a roadmap there's a transformation to get to that point but i think as a as a target state that's where you want to end up and therefore should the organization care about all of these things so, so this is what i see on a on a typical transformation program they're trying to get to grips even still with agile you know a lot of people are still waterfall mindset prince to service management so you've got that that they're trying to understand they're trying to understand the transformation strategy the vision from the organization itself they're trying to understand now this devops thing and like you say maybe maybe even two or three other competing things and i think that's a bad idea but i think mm. probably under the under the covers you want you know you want automation so you want you want that part of devops you probably want you know the eat you know eat your own dog food concept of if you build it you look after it in production so i think you want the devops culture part uh, i think you need platform engineering to get there right you know in a in a typical enterprise it's going to be one to five years depending on how much budget you put up front and <laughs> how serious you are about and how many mistakes you make along the way so but that should be transitional in my view and then you should end up with something that's self service for the developer what what do you think um yeah I, I totally agree with that i think i'm not sure it's, i think what's difficult probably for customers is knowing when you need something like what are the markers that tell you when you need to change because I guess every company is so different yet the terminologies are kind of singular they don't they're not conditionalized you know so it's just like platform engineering is platform engineering DevOps is DevOps but there's no condition of like which one do I choose if I'm a small company am I going DevOps straight away or like do I hire do I hire a lead in a small team who understands cloud or has maybe got some DevOps principle knowledge you know, I think that's quite hard because there's no, there's no real good guidance probably on like what it means. And then large enterprises who are probably straddling really complicated, um, complicated environments, and that's nothing to do with the strategy. That's just history. Like you've been around long enough, yeah, to have to have been on a data center because you predate cloud, right? Yeah. So like that's just a historical thing. And so then you're into like like a totally different type of business. And so what they're trying to do might be completely different. Their needs will be completely different to say a really small 
exactly. coming that's born in the cloud. So I do think it is hard for people to know what does it all mean to me, you know, like my company, when do I need these resources and when's a good time to invest? Um, and yeah. in the, in that as a principle, because most of the time, I think people are getting people in when they've hit, they've got the problem rather than, you know, then they're in a bit of a mess. So then they're seeking help because they've got them land themselves in a bit of a mess rather than understanding how they're going to evolve in yeah. to delivery. But yeah. And you yeah. see this like cargo cult thing of, you know, this organization wants to do it because it's competitors are all doing it without really understanding why I think that's the, yeah. that's the tail wagging the dog. It, I mean, for me, it should come from like a clearly articulated business strategy and then whoever's doing strategy in IT should should articulate, you know, this is the vision, this is the strategy. And then it it can follow from that if that's clear, right? If what are we trying to do? Are we are we trying to reduce, you know, is our main priority to reduce time to market? Is it cost saving? You know, what like yeah. what is it? Because that that might dictate a different path. Are we wanting to bring all of the incumbent staff, suppliers, whatever, on the journey, that that would obviously tell you a lot about what you should do. Um, and I think where it goes wrong is if you just kind of go to market, start hiring for buzzwords, then you yeah. end up in, in quite a mess because you don't understand why you're doing it, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's the same with all the, um, like you were talking even about multicult, we'll, we'll come on to in a minute, but even those things strategically aren't necessarily tied to business outcomes you know like what what's the driver of multi-cloud exactly or you know or people saying hybrid and it's like right our strategy is hybrid you're like how is how is that an actual strategy because it's not it business driven you know what i mean yeah. it's like what is the outcome you're even what do you get at the end of hybrid um and like what was the cost did you save money did you not save money like what was the objective actually so there's all these things that are termed strategies, but they're not really strategies. I agree with you. Not, I don't, I, I don't see yeah. how that can be a, you know, it gets termed as a strategy, but I've never seen, I've never heard a CIO or a strategist in an organization articulate why that's a strategy. Ultimately when they articulate it, it's a tactic, right? It's not a strategy. Yeah. It's we're on prem and would like to be fully in X cloud. And so we're hybrid. Well, yeah, that's just a state of being rather than a, than a strategy, right? So yeah, I, yeah. but I, I, you know, think maybe the same thing could be true of of having multiple public clouds as well. I don't know what you, what you think about that, but but is that a strategy? Is that a a meaningful strategy that you've heard articulated? Uh, def- from finances, from financial institutions. I mean, over here in the UK, obviously you have the PRA, which is like the regulatory body. I'm not sure they say you need a you has you have to be multi cloud. I think it's then bit like anything Chinese whispers I think they say something around the resiliency there um and obviously like data recovery perspectives and uptime etc like or if the cloud was to go bankrupt that you know for whatever reason um that you've diversified enough to like reduce the risk I don't think they ever say that then means you have to be multi-cloud um it just means you need to get out of jail card right basically I think is really what they're saying but I think just what you were saying before on the effort it can take some companies to even do one and the lack of understanding and the hiring, the talent and everything else. I mean, my view, I'm 
I'll ask yours as well, is like it seems almost impossible to do two clouds after you've done one. I don't know if you're, you're agreeing with that. And that maybe puts like value value and reward, isn't it? It's like, is there value in it? What's the reward of doing both? Um, and is it worth the effort in the end? So I don't know I mean, about I've you. I've never you... seen anyone pull it off as in like they're actually achieved the strategic aim of being either on the one hand getting the best out of both clouds. So sometimes that's the use case, right, of like you want to use Google for developer experience and AWS for maturity or AWS yeah. for maturity and as you had to be close to the data lake. Or, so you sometimes hear that as a, as a reason, and I've never seen that realized. And then the other reason is, you know, resiliency and availability over, over multi for that reason. And I've, I've never seen that either. So I think, you know, these surveys come out and they say how, you know, there's more people doing multi-cloud than single, but I don't, I kind of imagine that there's a very, very small subset of those that are actually achieving that. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I have seen the using the right card for the right job, but I think you have to be quite mature to know how to do that as in to have achieved I guess if you've if you can think about the infrastructure as separate from application in, in some ways, that if you can think that the application has dependencies outside of like how I run as a workload, um and then the app dependencies could be like a database or an object storage or something that are much more simplistic than say infrastructure and networking is then if you can make the infrastructure and the networking very service driven as in like a service then it can work but that takes a lot of design and upfront thinking it's a trade-off though isn't it like it can work but I think unless like you said regulatory compliance maybe could be one reason if but I but you know, I didn't, I didn't see that as a as a diktat when I was at HSBC when they were doing it. So they wanted agnosticism because they, f- you know, maybe feared competition or other things like that, right? But so mm-hmm. so maybe if you're so large, maybe if you're in the top five hundred largest organizations in the world, it can make sense. Maybe if there's true regulatory compliance, so, so Middle Eastern banks, for example, so they they maybe have a real case where they can't be on one American public cloud. Um, so that, that probably makes sense, but short of those, the challenge is going to be what we were talking about before, right? It's going to be the sprawl and the lack of talent to be able to do one. So who, which midsize or even large, but not super large organization has the luxury of, you know, the trade-off, right. To try and do two is going to essentially mean that you're going to take three times as long to accomplish the same goals as, as just focusing on one, I would say. Yeah. Just a minute, I'm gonna to have to stop. In terms then of um because you're talking about like compliance um and the security aspect of things. So when you're promoting platform engineering, are you seeing that as a better methodology on achieving the regulatory needs um for cloud and things like that, even if it was like multi-cloud or single cloud approaches and you're getting that there and that's or and then if you are doing that sorry it's a bit of too many questions for you but if you are doing that then does that does platform engineering then make multi-cloud easier um 
in theory. Well, I think multi-cloud always makes it harder from an engineering point of view, obviously, because you've got two different providers to deal with. So, you know, even if you kind of use consistent tooling as like Terraform and um, Docker and Kubernetes, it's different underlying providers, right? So it's never going to just run in multiple places. And, you know, you've, you've effectively got multiple data centers with completely different providers in. I think that the time that it the, the, the hybrid strategy makes sense is maybe this example of you have uh, data sovereignty concerns, legitimate data, data sovereignty concerns, and therefore you're on-prem for core systems, so core banking systems or or government in the case of foreign governments, right? Um, and you want to make use of cloud for point of presence or things like, um, you know, edge. You know, so you want to mm -hmm. do IoT stuff. So that that would be a legitimate strategy where you would have multi-cloud in the sense of something private, VMware or Red Hat or Oracle or something like that, some private cloud running Kubernetes and then some... Um, some Azure or something that runs stateless applications. So we see that, that sort of thing. <clears throat> Sorry, could you do that though with just, because the data sovereignty is the data, not the workload? Well, yeah, so you have some, you have some workloads that are maybe, that are maybe, maybe stateful. And, yeah. you know, even maybe you consider, you know, even user information, sovereign data, which which would be the case in like a Middle Eastern bank, let's say. Um, so that would need to be private. And then there's like a very narrow circumstance in which you can use public cloud, where it's like completely anonymized. So the workloads are, are purely non-customer, you know, like they're interacting with an edge device or something like that. So you see that sort of thing. So that would be legitimate, pretty edge case though, right? Yeah. Yeah, very, very niche. But I, I, I guess I struggle a little bit because the architectural, the architecture design that then drives, because there's so much to now, you know, from obviously you've got Kubernetes, but you have public cloud Kubernetes, you have Anthos, you have EKS Anywhere, you've got, you know, Outpost, you've got Azure Stack, on-prems, there's, you know, there's yeah. so many other ways to think about the public cloud even when it's on-prem yeah. um and if the thing if there are i guess that's where it becomes harder because now public cloud has evolved in such a way where it actually i mean what is public cloud when they go on-prem are they classified now as hybrid i don't even know if what the market research says is now a public cloud provider now a hybrid cloud provider because they've got Amazon Outpost and other things. And are they, you know, because yeah, I would never, I think I would never classify them as that. If somebody asked me what is the public cloud, you wouldn't ever think on-prem, but yet they've now got services that do support on-prem. So there is a bit of a remarketing, repositioning, probably even for the cloud vendors where they might have to change how they're being seen. Um, and then they're entering the hybrid market then at that point, which is what they're doing. So. Yeah. I'm not sure if customers even know that. Like, I'm not sure if people out there, the different companies are even aware that it doesn't mean you can't now use public cloud just because you are on-prem. Like, like things have changed. Um, so, yeah, that's a good yeah. that's a good thought, actually. So you get as well, we've seen where 
you're wanting to be in, let's say Azure in your example, you're wanting to be in Azure for to be at the edge near the near the customer that you're delivering the service to, you're wanting to make use of all the advanced tooling in the cloud, which if you wind back a couple of years, I don't know what Azure stack is exactly like now, but it was much more limited a couple of years back. So, but customer has a data center and they've put Azure stack on it. And then therefore, I mean, it's a little bit of some cost fallacy, I would say, but, but maybe, uh, at least in the interim period, while that's committed, you know, contractually or, or strategic partnership or whatever, um, or they're just wedded to it in some way, then it's cheaper, right? So it can often be cheaper to run then development and test workloads on prem, and then only production workloads in the cloud. So you see that set up as well. So that might be something where you see, like you mentioned, a hybrid on prem and public cloud with the same provider, but. We see it more commonly whether with, like I mentioned, like Pivotal Cloud Foundry or Red Hat or VMware or Oracle or something on-prem, and then they're using Amazon, Google, Microsoft in a limited way in the public, and it's normally a risk diversity. Do you think then? Because straddling, like you were saying before, you know, multi-cloud, the different APIs, different services, different ways you've got to do it. Terraform obviously is a standard abstraction to a point. Um, the cloud vendors have, even though they are quite different API endpoints, their services are not that dissimilar. Um, you know, they tend to match like for like, but just slightly nuanced each time. Obviously, Kubernetes is the agnostic piece from an application perspective. It, the app doesn't know any different, and probably developers yeah. wouldn't know any different when it comes to Kubernetes. Yeah. It could be anywhere at that stage. Um, but how is it working then with your kind of straddling cloud and then something like VMware, which is quite different? You know, it's not, the APIs aren't designed quite as well, I would say, arguably as say the public cloud vendors who were born, born into a way where they were thinking about APIs and abstractions right from the, you know, the get go. Um, so does it, is it, more complicated or do people just get on with it and actually isn't that complicated and people have the skills i don't i don't know much more com much more yeah. complicated i would say it's a it's a situation which you want to be in tactically temporarily um you don't want to be you don't want to have two operating models which is ultimately what you end up with two separate sets of ingress egress all those networking so you've still got a lot of you've still got basically all of the stuff teams, licenses that you had before, and now this, you know, yeah. from your organization's point of view, cutting edge bit and separate teams, for, and, and these people don't want to work on that, and these people aren't able to understand that. So I think that's where they end up getting buried in technical debt, isn't it? Um, and in legacy running, that, that's what kills the transformation efforts because the budgets then go over and the stakeholders demand, okay, why are we not finished now? And that's how you end up where they, they go, go on for years and years. You should, from the beginning, plan to go from one to the other as rapidly as you can. But again, it, it depends on the, the constraints and uh, you need a very well thought out strategy, basically. Yeah, you do. So you then, then so you're saying people are a bit more ring-fenced from a, more from a skills perspective. So you're going to have 
um, even in the DevOps space then as well, or the platform engineering space where you oh, have, yeah, definitely, definitely. right. So you've got, you've got obviously the infrastructure side of VMware networking, like you were saying, load balancers. So you're going to have that team, right? Because yep. it's, it's not software defined as it kind of is after it's there, <laughs> but yes. somebody's got to make it there and all, yes. you know, so we're going to put the networks in place and actually configure it all so beforehand, um, which obviously you don't do with public cloud because they've done that. So you've got yes. that team and then you've then got then DevOps or platform engineering that are then ring fenced to knowing the kind of VMware world. And then you have then another team that kind of understands the more public cloud world, like Amazon yep. or Google. That's yep. interesting. And do they like, are you trying to get the skills, you know, when you go into an org, were you trying upskill, you know, both or do you, do you think it's better to kind of ring fence the teams rather than cross pollinate and upskill? Well, if I'm being very honest, I think you need you need engineers and you need to retrain them in security principles and, and things like this, right? You need people because the new the new platforms are made of software, you need software engineers and can you reskill um, non-engineers? You know, it's a, long, a very long time to, to learn to become an engineer and learn the software development lifecycle. And, you know, even, even platforms now, right, they're, they're software defined and we're checking them in and out and we're version controlling them. And so I don't think you would want to, to retrain people in that. I think you would want to hire software engineers and make them appreciate for the next, you know, four years or whatever, we're going to be in this hybrid state. And, and this is where our core banking function or core mm -hmm. business function is. And so, you know, we need to treat that with the same importance as this shiny new stuff. So that's probably the line. If it was my organization, I would go down is, is training the software engineers to have sympathy for the legacy estate and, and try and migrate, you know, have sunsetting of, of the legacy as the priority. And that often that's not what you see happen. You often yeah. see that it's good for everyone's CVs, including the, the managers just to push this bit. And, uh, of course the debt is the, is the legacy. I mean, it's legacy for a reason, right? You want to wrap a veneer around it and then eventually sunset it. So I think more priority could go on, on sunsetting the, the old stuff and, understand that right at the beginning that that's what you're doing that there's some end in mind yeah and do you think then because um do you think the reason it's taking longer is because let me rephrase the question it, it what do you think slows down the migration process to public cloud um do you think the migration the modernization of migration is more from the application side um or do you think it's more from the infrastructure side that kind of slows it down? I think I think it's the the infrastructure side, but it's again, it's like it's software engineers who know platforms, isn't it? So it, it depends yeah. on it de depends on your priori. But I would say, like a good DevOps engineer is a developer who's keen on doing ops, not the other way not the other way around. So there's an obviously abundance of people with, with my past history, you know, system engineers, 
But unless they're a bit like you, where they've been like hardcore Linux first, they're not mm. that useful, right? If it's if it's people who know, you know, primarily Cisco switches and operating systems and uh, you know this patching in the data center, that's not really a transferable skill, right? Um, yeah. well, some of it is, some of it is, but not not much of it. So that's the shortage you get, right? The shortage is software engineers, and then within the software engineer shortage you know, people who are willing to give up craftsmanship of software and do building utility services, which a lot of, you know, proper developers find boring. They don't want to go into that. So that's where you find the profound shortage. So it's it's that bit that we see the most shortage of. But then, you know, building building really good microservices, you know, people who can who can do that as well are, are also lacking, I would say. Yeah, I did I came across a company that could that like profiled a bit like um, tracing, it like trace internally in the application um, for like monolithic apps. And then it could work out how to um, kind of decouple the application into microservices. So it could work out like what was isolated in the code as in like what groups, how you could group the code into more Microsoft architecture and then kind of split the code out to be like, this should be one microservice, this should be another microservices. So I think there's a I think there's things going on there in that space to help on the app side, and that's probably just going to keep happening. You know, innovation just always is happening. Um, I'm sure that's useful, but to, to me, to me, it's 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 kind of the wrong way around. So so to me, what the, the bit that often gets missed is like doing proper domain driven design, like actually understanding, okay, what is your current application state? I mean, actually, it's quite few organisations that really understand what they've already got. I'm sure that you've you felt yeah. seen this as well, right? So so you need to understand that first. And then to me, you need to to do domain-driven design, right? You need to understand the domains of the business. You need to use the language of the business and decide what it is that you're building and then carve that out and do it as microservices. So the danger of the danger of a tool like that example, although I think if you are on that path that I'm describing, it would be great because it would then provide a utility to say, okay, like here's the low-hanging fruit to do that. But I think that it'd be dangerous for that to drive it because that's like an anti-pattern of, of domain-driven design, right? To have the the way that things were before driving how yeah. they should be in the future uh, or the language of the developer. You know, the ubiquitous language should be the language of the bit. The, the developer should learn the language of the business, not the other way, not the other way around. Yeah, and I think I think you're yeah you're spot on really. And then the the goals, or even what we were just saying before, those aren't strategies and goals. And I think you pulled on it a few times. Where you know what is the actual objective? Surely the objective has to be the business logic being yep. decoupled in such a way that you know that's the bit that's making the money for the company. Yeah, everything else really is all about is just friction isn't it? Yeah. It's friction to that, like the infrastructure's friction, you know, just to get the application hosted, the the clouds can be friction because you've got to understand them all before you can actually deliver on the business logic. You know, it's all these things all about like the strategy should be like friction free. Really, that should be the strategy, like just remove all the friction as much as possible so that we're just down to the business logic and that should be kind of the strategy and then everything else exactly. falls past that, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, and it's strange because we knew this, right? IT originally was like under finance and was a service service to the rest of the business and 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 now you know it's right that 
that, that software developers are really cherished because they're building the services now because the services are digital. But yeah, I don't, I don't quite understand how it became that the DevOps called the shots and site reliability called the shots. And obviously those things should be a mean to an end. So I think, I think that's maybe what was behind your comment about, I mean, like to go back to that, your comment about um, recruitment and, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole thing where the industry is driving the behavior in the enterprise and surely it should be, look, mm. this is our strategy. This is where our business needs to go. This is how we're competitive. And then we have a hiring strategy that meets that need. So yeah, what did you mean by, by that comment about, you know, recruitment driving things? Yeah, recruitment driving things. I think you only know what you need. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a, to be fair, I think, maybe because we've been in the industry a while and probably seen a lot of things you take for granted your experience you know because you've probably seen what works and what doesn't work over time and you're watching where the industry's going and you've seen good patterns and bad patterns and i suppose that comes from dealing with multiple customers you know and being privileged to see and compare and contrast whereas some people might be in the same company for quite a while and not necessarily have that compare and contrast elements. So that's when the market starts to drive, you know, them in some ways, because they're hearing these things and it's like, right, okay, well, it's, it's DevOps and it's this, you know, yeah, that's what we need, right? That's, yeah. and people only talk about the successes, right? People aren't saying, hey, yeah, you know, we did this thing, but we actually failed 8 million times before we even got here and it cost us like loads of money. And no one's really willingly gonna put themselves forward and say that, like, was that even cost effective? that journey that we just went on um, yeah. was that business value. So I think there isn't enough in the industry to talk about what doesn't work and what isn't working well, rather than just, you know, the, the illusion that innovation is always positive and the roles are always positive. But I, I think, no, there probably needs to be something in the industry to bring. My advice for like CTOs and others would be to join groups community groups of yourselves so they actually can share ideas i don't think there's enough of that maybe the cloud vendors should be bringing the customers together better um to talk through things and share knowledge because that's the only right way and then the roles would sit behind that because then you'd be like right okay now i get what i'm really trying to do and these are the types of hires i need and now i can go to market and get them um whereas without that happening i kind of feel sorry for like if you don't know, you just don't know. Yeah. And if you're learning secondhand from the market without the experience, then obviously you're not going to know either. You're just going to do whatever it's telling you. And I imagine the cloud vendors probably equally as frustrated because the more you know, the more a customer struggles, the less money they'll make. Right. Yes. So in truth. So they're going to be motivated to have the customer doing well. And also the whole cost thing. They don't really want customers, I don't think, spending that amount of money um, in the cloud because it risks... And not getting, a res- not getting a result that they can showcase, yeah. Exactly. It's a risk to them. You know, that if that noise starts to happen where it's not worth the money, it's more expensive and all this other stuff, it's like, well, you can do lots of things badly, not just the cloud. Lots of things can be done badly and cost a lot of money. It doesn't mean, you know that you go backwards, you need to kind of work out the right thing. So I don't think the cloud vendors are, cent- are incentivized to either to want it. So I think 
the talent lacking and the groups and the roles, there probably needs to be more community centricity. But I think the roles, like you're saying, with you don't, if you can't clarify the roles, then you're not going to know why you need them other than the fact that you probably need them. <laughs> you see what I mean? Because other people have them. So you're like, well, that's just what people have. So therefore, yes. I'm just going to get the same. Um, but again, it's not down to a strategy. So I, th- I think with customers, do you, are you helping? Do you help them with the strategy then? Do you get involved to try and coerce the right conversations so that you can at least help the customers properly? You know, rather we than do, just... We do. We yeah. do. We try and give them our opinion, especially if it's early and and you know, they're not suffering from some cost fallacy. And it can be difficult, right? If you've already committed, if you've already, if the CEO has already gone into a strategic relationship with someone or, you know, they've already, you know, spent a year working up this plan. But yeah, the the sooner that you can get it back on track and that's that's what we try and do. We, We generally discourage them from trying to build platform engineering teams in house. Um, and that's why we exist as an organization is because that, you know, like we talked about before, that should be temporary. And yeah, we, we try and build communities as well. So especially when we do government stuff, um, you know, they're not competitors, right? So they often see each other as competitors, but shouldn't. Um, so we try and get them together, as you suggested, so that they can follow the ones that have got the success patterns. Um, and I do think there's like perverse incentives, right? To, like you rightly put your finger on if um, if you're trying to attract talent, then the mindset is, okay, we have to project success. And, mm. um, you know, there's that, then this race condition of who's the furthest ahead. And like you, like you suggested, there's a, there's a cherry picking of only the success cases, which doesn't really represent the reality. So there's those perverse incentives. And then obviously recruitment agencies are typically set up that they make a percent of a, of a placed headcount. So, so the higher that price, then the better they do. Obviously the contractor or the individual does better if that price is inflated. So I guess it follows the hype curve, like almost everything else in that sense, I'm sure. Um, I'm sure it's not different to any other hype curve or any other role, but mm. I don't know, you notice it and I notice it. It does seem quite profound in this particular case. Um, but yeah, they should be driven. They should be driven by strategy, not by recruitment. Do you think the industry's been honest then about the problems that exist? As in, like, you know, all the all the terms as well, like all the different paradigms, like GitOps and talking about that. But let's be honest, that's like not really anything new. Just infrastructure is code rebranded. Um, but then it doesn't really tell you anything. It's just like a way of working kind of and then again i'm not sure even how how mature the strategies are there like you know how do you when how does that work at scale you know how what happens when you've got multiple environments and then multiple cloud accounts multiple environments per cloud account how do you do all that with GitOps? are you branching are you like do you, i mean is that all these different things that maybe haven't been thought out thought about but everyone's talking about how amazing it is yeah. And like you need to do it and you're like a bit like DevOps was and all these other things. And it tends to be a bit tends to be a bit like that in the industry. It's all quite hyped up yeah. as if everything's got the answer in it. Yes. And it's like, but so do you think there's honesty 
you know, as much transparency and honesty in the industry and that people are talking enough about what isn't working. Um, well, obviously it's not like a singular uh, conscience. So I don't think like it's, it's necessarily honest or dishonest, but it's exactly as you said, it's, it's more attractive to talk about the latest shiny thing and the hype. And um, I don't know, like for, for me, I often think, can we not just concentrate on getting like what's in the Agile manifesto, like you know, working software before documentation? Like we don't need a new principle. Like we have that very old principle and how, how many organizations are observing it or, you know, test-driven development or... Mm. Like you say, even DevOps is relatively old now. Um, so yeah, I would rather see, you know, things like XP and I would rather see some mastery or at least at least a high level of attainment on some of these old patterns that really matter um, before, before being driven by hype on particular implementations and... Um, so there's no doubt, right, when it be something like Kubernetes, I mean, you know, you see, you might have seen that Dilbert cartoon uh, take yeah. off of it. And, you know, so that can suffer from it as well. But I think the difference is there that it's that it's already ubiquitous, right? It's the only game in town. So for that, like, you know, if you are going to do microservices style architecture and you are going to hire real humans to come and do it, like it is going to be Kubernetes, right? So, so I think once they become ubiquitous, that that hype argument goes away, right? But um, yeah, I think for, for these other new shiny things, I mean, they're, they're all great, actually. I don't think there's any there's any pretenders out there that have, you know, some are more useful than others, and you can argue that all day, but but something like Git and then GitOps and infrastructure is good. I mean, they're all, you know, when you read through the best practices, that they're all noble and you should be doing them. But I would mm. just ask, yeah, have you mastered is the organization agile first? Have you adopted kind of immutable infrastructure first? Are you following even Git? Um, and that's often not the case, right? Often you have these different sites. It's so ironic, right? But you have these silos that the organizations are more siloed than ever in some ways. You've got all these different clans within the organization. You have centralized platform teams, as you alluded to, and they're, they're adopting their own thing. So one of the things we try and use is like... Um, is like a, a technology roadmap and a technology radar, and we try and we try and centralize the design authority and the decision making, and and bring experts in from all of those different teams. And you know, it can be seen as putting putting the brakes on and dampening the innovation, but but really, they're off. Customer is often trying to do too much and not getting anything done. So we bring it back to okay, like what is the principle that we're trying to adhere to? Are we trying to test first or you know, are we trying to improve agility and, okay, should we just maybe talk about these foundational blocks in our opinion that you need first? So that's, that's one thing that we try and do is just bring it, bring it back down to basics. And often it's hard, right? Because they're politically, they're already three years into that journey and they don't want to go back to that, you know, but yeah. they're not really going back. They're really mastering something that they should have mastered right at the outset. So that's the challenge, right? If politically, part of the organization thinks it's ready, you know, in your example, ready for GitOps, we would say, yeah. well, have you actually got infrastructure as code everywhere yet? Are you doing policy? You know, uh, are you actually doing Git in development successfully yet? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's you're, you're spot on there. I think that's good that you're doing that because you're right. I suppose it is, yeah, if you've got so far to admit that you're going too fast in too many directions and then you need to reorder yourself, it's just basically like regrouping. Um, but the education, I think, like you were saying, if there's a skills deficit um, in the industry, like anything, you're only as good as the talent that you manage to get in. That's the same with anything. You could say, you could apply to literally anything, builders, any tradesmen, like literally anything, right? The job's yep. going to be only as done well as the person and the people that you're bringing in. Yeah. Uh, but the education, though, the guidance on the for the customer on what it all means and the principles you were saying, like what's the value out of those ways of working and why are they important? And to educate everyone on it first before you then implement and do. Um, so that everyone's on the same page and there's no illusions on like what it actually meant. Um, cause it's funny cause I think I've been in meetings where people have different perceptions of what the things mean, you know, and they've been doing them for a while and you could be in a meeting, you can clearly tell that everyone's got a slightly different view of roughly the same types of things. So people would be saying words but what they're meaning to someone else is slightly different yeah. to what they might be with someone else. I and mean, you're all, you, you know, really the room's in this slight state of confusion about what it all actually means. And you can see that and you think, well, if that's in your company, then yeah, you're probably not going to get very far because you're already starting off on the wrong foot. So, um, yeah. yeah. And to, um, so what do you see next then for yourselves at codification? Are you um, progressing with the clouds? doubling down on the platform engineering side, helping customers more on the agile aspects or a bit of everything? Well, the best the best relationship for us is when we're offering all of that and we're like a trusted partner and the customer accepts that it's a complex challenge, it's a multi-year challenge. So where we can have a relationship where we can honestly assess where they're at. So that's one of the tools that we use is... You know, you can make those arguments, but ultimately they can be political. There can be another supplier there, or even when there's not very opinionated people in the organization, like you rightly said, you can have, you know, multiple people using a word, but meaning different things by it. So, so one of the things we try and do is like a terms of reference and we try and use, you know, standard, you know, try not let the organizing come up with its own terminology, but use standard tools and standard language to describe those tools and, standard methodologies that are that are proven um, and we try and do um, assessment somewhat by stealth so so rather than going around saying okay we're going to assess everyone we'll often be engaged to do a narrow form of assessment which we'll then broaden out so we'll be we'll be engaged to do like a, a platform maturity assessment but then we'll broaden it out into saying okay how is the testing being done what's the self-service like for developers? And then you're actually into people in process. Um, mm. So where we can get that level of trust to be able to do those sorts of things, we can get much better results. And then especially if they engage us to kind of assess everything out in the open, which is which is rare to be fair, um, because, we're a, because we're a small startup and, and not that well known. So that can happen yeah. in, you know, maybe we've done some small one-off projects and then we've built up the trust and then, you know, we've made our way up to the kind of senior leadership and then they say, okay, you know, tell us where we're really at. And then what we can do is compare 
the scores on multiple narrow things and say, okay, when you when you compare these in aggregate, it kind of gives you a level of maturity. Let's compare that with our other customers. Um, let's compare that with people in your industry or different industry or where you're trying to get to. Um, so that that can work, giving them this like objective comparison. So obviously we don't we don't disclose who that other customer was or break any kind of confidentiality there, but we just say, okay, another another client in this sector, this is how they scored. This is where they're up to on their journey. This is their perception of themselves before the assessment. This is the reality of what the assessment showed. So we do that sort of thing. And we do um, like lab-based training of their people as well. So we can actually get the capability assessment there. So they send, you know, again, we can ask them, where do you think this team is at? Uh, okay, this, you know, after six weeks of instruction, this is how well they followed the instruction. This is how well they completed the assignments. This is how your team compares to a different team in the organization. It's maybe in a completely different leadership structure, different incentives. So mm-hmm. they can find that, you know, eye-opening as well. And then again, you can compare the capability to the outside world. So that's what we like. And, and we can compare new joiners that maybe have been through some kind of codification bootcamp before joining and then put on a project and then assessed versus someone that they're trying to upskill or someone they haven't given the proper time to achieve the upskilling. So all of those things we can we can kind of help them with. So it, it doesn't matter to us if they're really struggling or they're really advanced. You know, we're, Our team is technically always in advance of their team because they're not a technology company. They're, they're trying to become one. So, yeah. so we've got no, no real strong opinion of what they ought to be. Um, we just try and show them, okay, this is where, this is where you thought you were. And this is where you really are. This is where you're trying to get to. And this is the gap. Um, and then we can help across the board, right? We can help by augmenting them with engineers, be it platform engineers or cloud engineers or whatever we can train, retrain the teams, or we can hire, hire new permanent staff for them. Nice. And if somebody wanted to get in touch, how do they get hold of yourselves? If they're like, listened and were like, oh, that is what we need. Like we're in a bit of a tricky situation at the moment and maybe we need to get yourselves in. Uh, the website codification.io would be the, the one stop. The place to go. Cool. Um, all right. Well, um, it's been great chatting to you, Richard. Um, and thanks for spending the time, obviously, to come on the podcast and talk about these things with everybody. Hopefully somebody got something out of it. Um, who's listening and obviously as you heard you can reach out to codification.io if there's things there and you think we can help then please do reach out so awesome thank you john thanks for inviting me it's been great cheers thanks bye